This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And we're going to get right to it today because we have a very special guest in the studio right here with us. Sitting to my right is Adam Fisher. Adam worked for the Mets for over a decade, most recently as a senior director of baseball operations, spent some time with the Atlanta Braves as an assistant GM. And he's here with us to really just answer all of our ridiculous questions about what it's like to work inside a front office at trade season what it's like to kind of work in baseball as the statistical revolution sort of got going. You started in 2003, I believe. Uh, yes. You were there for about 14 years. So first of all, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you coming into the studio. Thank you for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. Nice to be here, Matt. And, Thanks, uh, guys. Exactly. Mike never even introduced me. He went right to Adam. Oh, I said, no, no, no. He did. He did. He, he introduced you. For yeah. your own name. <laughs> uh, before we ask a ton of questions, I know, I'm not sure everybody understands what a director of baseball operations is. They know the GM, the scouting director. Uh, so just tell us a little bit about what the day-to-day is like in that kind of role. Sure. Uh, you know, it can mean a lot of different things for different organizations. Uh, I kind of had a similar role as I, as I moved up the chain sort of went coordinator, manager, director of baseball ops and had varying responsibilities over the course of my time there. Uh, I, ran the, I ran the intern program consistently, so hiring new talent. Uh, I oversaw analytics for about five years, oversaw pro scouting. Uh, my most recent, uh, basically my most recent stuff with the Mets was a lot of administration, so arbitration, contracts. Uh, also oversaw advanced scouting. And you could kind of see the when we're talking about analytics here, the the evolution of advanced scouting, we always used uh, a lot of statistics, but just sort of how it evolved over the years in terms of what we gave the coaches in that packet, using StatCast, positioning type stuff, particularly uh, also analyzing our own players for coaches. But but that that's an area where so I kind of had I still had my my hand in sort of both worlds with administration and advanced scouting, and then over the course of the entire time there. I got a chance to be involved in most of our transactions. So the fun stuff for, for the public, uh, making trades, signing free agents. Uh, we had a very collaborative approach, both with Omar uh, Manaya and Sandy Alderson while I was there. Lots of opinions, particularly Sandy, uh, very open to gathering, da- gather- gathering different ideas and sort of synthesizing them. That was kind of his M.O. So two, 2003 is when you started, right? There was no pitch effects. There was no, no. fan graphs. Uh, Moneyball was basically like it was happening at that time. What, yes. When you started, what was the kind of uh, an, uh, analytics that were being used, if, if really any? Yeah, we didn't have a whole lot. Uh, they had, they had a, we had a part-time. It was one of the things that actually Jim Duquette, who's of course now uh, works, works here at MLB.com, he was, uh, he was the assistant GM at the time. He's the one who hired me and kind of gave me a tip that will you know listen this is where the game's moving and if you become sort of a, a statistical expert you'll have a better chance to get hired i can tell you that i had zero math classes in college uh i mean i'm decent at you know i was decent at math but nothing that really interested me that much 
But my year as an intern with the Mets, I essentially just threw myself into everything I could find. Bill James, baseball prospectus at the time, was doing cutting-edge stuff, uh, all of that. And uh, Moneyball, I think, was the year that I was an intern or maybe the next year. So that was that was pretty big. It, it really hit all front offices when you weren't particularly analytically inclined as a front office. We had a part-time guy, Craig Marino, who's great, who's since moved on. Uh, he was working in two departments. He was overseeing – he was doing some statistics for Steve Phillips, and then he was doing a community outreach for the Mets as well. So um, <laughs> so it gives you an idea of kind of what, you know, what, what it was at that point. And we were just straight up working Excel – spreadsheets and a lot of the time was simple uh, data entry taking the info off of baseball reference or whatever uh, and and crunching the numbers so that was that was huge in terms of time consuming uh, stuff we weren't really doing a whole lot of advanced stuff outside of just looking at your basic your basic strikeout walk rate uh, I mean stuff that we continue to look at for when we look at today, I still think it's maybe the most important thing. Uh, just, just your, your, your basic, uh, your basic rate stats, but, um, it evolved the next year. My, when I was made full time, we hired Ben Bomber, uh, who's now a professor at Smith and, uh, Ben is extremely talented and basically without any coding, any training as a, as a programmer built the Mets website self-taught uh, and by the time by the time 2005 rolled around, we actually had a pretty solid working database, and all that data entry was over. And we started working with more advanced type stuff. During your time there, where do you think like sort of the the Mets fell on like the spectrum of like analytically inclined versus you know if like you know the current Astros are the extreme of like most right. analytical? Where do you think the Mets were like one to thirty? <laughs> well, I know that we got a bad rep when Omar came on board. Uh, I would say. As as it evolved with Omar, we were probably in the top ten. Uh, as as he kind of finished up his his tenure and Sandy jumped on board, I'd say we stayed right around there. Uh, we probably moved to the middle, less of less of what with what we were doing, more with what other teams were doing. More teams becoming more analytically inclined, and and we weren't investing quite as much. Still had a really small shop, uh, and today they have basically three guys: T.J. Barra, who guys may have may have uh, talked to he's the director of analytics these days Joe Lefkowitz and Chris Pang are two really talented programmers uh, that's the department so some teams have I mean I think the that uh, who is it the Dodgers have like 17 guys or something I think the Yankees too yeah I, I met all of them last year and they're the Yankees are, no, the Dodgers and the there Dodgers. are a lot of them <laughs> yeah I, I think the sweet spot's probably five or six uh, so but these guys, the the three guys the Mets have are really talented and are able to at least get them to the middle with only three guys. It's a, they're really uh, what 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 Joe Lefkowitz did, who came from the Yankees, who uh, he essentially took Ben's website and uh, imp- modernized it and improved it. And Chris Pang is really talented with graphics. Uh, the the three of them have done a great job. Well, TJ deserves credit too, just just kind of working through the, the Mets database over the years. And Joe kind of took it up to the next level. So when, so. You, when you say the Mets website, you mean like an internal site? Where it's, it's essentially like, an internal, so yeah. yeah, an internal, an internal database that essentially that basically has everything you would ever want. And I can tell you that <laughs> I feel kind of naked as a member of the public now. <laughs> um, I, I, you guys kind of asked me this off the podcast, but I, my brief time with the Braves, I kind of felt naked over there too. They, they have, they still probably have a pretty long way to go uh, to catch up. I would expect they were in the bottom five of baseball. 
Well, that's actually time. kind of raises a good point. How different do you think public and private metrics are? Like how far behind is the public from what the teams can do? I don't think I don't think it's that. Well, I think it's probably far behind perhaps the top five clubs maybe. I think I would expect with the firepower the Astros have, the Dodgers, the Yankees, some of those teams that have 10, 15, 20 guys, they're probably pretty far ahead of the other teams. I'm not – I mean, these other teams are trying to build up their groups – I, I, with what we had with the Mets was definitely more advanced than what the public has. I think one of the key advantages is just the access, just having it so quickly at your fingertips and finding out what you want and being able to do research really quickly. That's, that's a big thing. Uh, I think with three guys, you're limited in kind of the scope of the research you can do with the Mets, but they've, for three guys, they've done, they've done great work. So is it, for for the Mets, it, there was we had a lot of advantages, but the biggest advantage for me was just the availability of the advanced stuff. From uh from the people we've talked to, we basically have figured out that every single team is very smart people in their front offices, but not every team does an equally good job at getting that to the field in a way that the players sure. can actually and the coaches can actually. Uh, did you ever have a role in that in trying to communicate that to the players or the coaching staff? Oh yeah, well I uh, I oversaw as I as I mentioned earlier, overseeing advanced scouting, uh, doing a lot of of uh, talking with uh, with the coaching staff, particularly pitching coach and hitting coach, and uh, Kevin Long particularly is is really good with that stuff. Now the Nationals hitting coach, uh, he really gets it. He's an outstanding instructor and understands statistics and and has a feel for it. Pat Rustler is now the Mets hitting coach. Similar, Dan more than kind of an old school guy, but but very open to that kind of thing. And uh, to just give an example, I think uh, well Hansel Robles who many Mets fans like to curse, uh, who's now, I think, is he still an angel? I think, I think so. for now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, well, Hansel, we just to give, and this, this is nothing, nothing earth shattering here, but, uh, just based on, on, on Hansel's command, uh, and using, using the, at the time pitch FX data, uh, we moved him on the rubber and he saw some results just based on that. But you see that with it, with, with other teams, uh, there's, Monitoring injuries using uh, using the TrackMan data is one way. You know, in, in in talking to the coaching staff, okay, this guy's arms dropping. Uh, you know, TJ would will still check that kind of stuff during the game. Um, those are ways that that you can use it. Uh, statistically, <laughs> this is kind of a funny anecdote. Uh, we had we had something. I can't. I don't really necessarily want to give the special sauce, but it was it was something that gave the co that gave the manager a better idea in terms of matchups so to set his lineup and uh it was in a matrix form so just just a, a kind of a spreadsheet i guess you could say but so it'd be like in like the top right there's like this is the optimal matchup and bottom left is like this is the worst matchup or by kind of like by pitcher and by player and then okay and color coded that it. kind of stuff and it was on his it was on his desk and the writers asked him about it and he called it the matrix and then <laughs> for the next thing we knew that our statistical database was called the matrix the mets have an advanced database called the matrix so we start i tried to get us to call it that or maybe morpheus you know all these teams have these stupid names really so ground control um, i mean what's what's uh, let, let's be I, I have no problem saying like what's up with some of these names like, <laughs> like, why do you name it that but yeah some of them are just uh, acronyms i think yeah, yeah the acronym's cool you know i mean but uh it also makes it seem 
some of the teams that have acronyms, their their databases just aren't that good. It makes it seem a lot cooler and more advanced. <laughs> maybe that's than it part is. of the, maybe that's part of the idea. Um, you know, but uh, but anyway, that didn't hold. It's it's just the Matt's st- Matt statistical database. <laughs> um, that that never uh, never went MSD? through. But we had a we had a yeah we had a great a lot of laughs about the matrix and 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 that. But you uh, you mentioned uh, looking at TrackMan data to try to help pitchers maybe look at when they're getting injured. Do you think the Mets get a little bit of an unfair rap for all the injuries? Like because everybody's trying to solve that that problem and the first person who does it is going to be a billionaire but it's obviously so difficult scratch you scratch your head i I, you know i'm not really i can't even put my finger on it you know i I, the fans wanted to blame our our old trainer ray ramirez i mean he he's really good at his job and it wasn't him uh philosophically yeah you saw they they shifted their they're they're having better communication uh sort of some a coordinator who's filtering the information from the medical staff working with the trainers and we're still seeing a barrage of injuries for the Mets. I'm really not sure what, uh, I mean, I, I thought I saw an anecdote that this is Todd Frazier now second time on the DL and he's never been on the DL before in his career. <laughs> Look, I, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Um, clearly it's, it's a, uh, it's an industry wide ec- epidemic, but it's hit the Mets the last three years pretty hard. Interestingly enough, Sandy, it didn't really get us too bad his first five years and the thing is, unfortunately, when it comes to the Mets, people have very long memories, and it got this recent stretch has gotten linked to the really rough stretch that we had in from eight to ten, oh eight to ten. So, I don't know what to tell you. I think um, it, it would be MLB's done some initiatives. I think that there's a, a Tommy John study uh, out there that I think I saw was, is has been made public. Um, so, so they're they're working on it. Uh, there's actually a company. Well, there's a couple of companies out there that do uh, motionless uh, motionless uh, capturing. Have you, have you heard of uh, Kinetrax is one uh, that, that a bunch of teams are using where it's high-speed cameras, essentially. Uh, have you, are you familiar? They're, they have a, the lab in ASMI. Well, they'll, yeah. They'll, yeah. Put, yeah, yeah. they'll put markers on the guys and study their delivery. So there's a couple companies out there that actually will use high-speed cameras, and they can do it during the game. And that's pretty interesting. My thought, my thought was actually those companies should perhaps be bought out by MLB or, or a, a league-wide deal where you kind of get rid of the competitive advantage of injury prevention to just simply have mass injury prevention. And the best teams are the best teams, and the best players get to be on the field. Uh, I think that would be pretty helpful. It, it was an idea that was floated, but as of now, I feel like there's probably five to ten teams that are using, using that type of information to, to get a better feel for injuries. A uh, quick reminder that Statcast is presented by Amazon Web Services. And if you like Adam, you can follow him at on Twitter at Adam G. Fisher. Uh, just Adam G. Fisher on Twitter. That's it, yeah. Um, so you, we're talking about TrackMan, obviously. So you were there for a long time before Statcast and before TrackMan. Mm-hmm. And that starts to come online uh, in 2015. How quickly did you start to integrate that kind of stuff and in what ways? It's so much data. That's the thing. I think the, the first thing was just being prepared and having a place to store it. We, we, we made sure that we, we, were, we were ready to go. Uh, and then it's kind of figuring out a way to analyze it and also clean the data because, you know, it's buggy, that kind of thing. Uh, certainly our first thought was defense. And it took a little while, but I would say end of, end of uh, 2016 season, uh, we started kind of getting something that we liked as far as, as, far as defense, uh, talking to the coaches, getting a feel for the types of stuff that they might want to track, uh, you know, running speed, jumps, that kind of thing. Uh, but the biggest, 
the biggest factor, of course, and is defense and figuring out defensive positioning, trying to come up with a better defensive metric and a better better way to measure uh, players' defense. Still, from a value standpoint, I think it, it's all over the map. You know what? Since it is sort of part of pitching, I mean, it's integrated in that. From my, this, is, I mean, personally, my opinion, um, but really just using it uh, for that, and then also, it really started to revolutionize our advanced scouting. We didn't have to. You know, you're not having to time catchers anymore, pickoff moves, uh, all of those things, just making it more and more automated. Uh, our intern program was heavily based around essentially filtering statistics for our advanced scouting program. And in the 20, during the 2017 season, it, it just it completely shifted and evolved. We, we had to try to find new things for them to do because it was just becoming more and more automated. So... Uh, so from that standpoint, it's, it's making a huge, it's making a huge, huge difference. Uh, and I think they're, they're only going to figure, figure out new and, and interesting ways to use it. But, but defense is, is the big thing, of course. Yeah. That actually reminds me, I think there was a piece that on Fangraphs last year, I forgot who wrote it, where basically said that StatCast is good for scouts because it allows them to watch the game because they don't have mm-hmm. to w- spend their time right. timing things. And like, you know, with the radar gun, it's like, it's all done for them. So they actually can like watch the the players' yeah. movements and see who's fluid, see who's athletic, see like who's actually giving effort and engage things like that. That's I think that's fair. I think I think where where Statcast and some of this stuff's going to have the the biggest impact is major league scouting. You know, I, I understand that it, it ultimately will will filter down to the minor leagues, uh, but I still think you want to get your eyes on prospects. And at the major league level, you have so much quality video. I mean, you're getting more and more quality video at the minor leagues for these teams too. Uh, but the major leagues, you have you have the games, and you have Statcast and, and and all these other uh, ways to measure things, advanced statistics. So, I think you're going to see fewer and fewer major league scouts. I think they're still worthwhile, but at least as of now, yes, I think it's pretty uh, that it's it's pretty complementary. That doesn't mean that there won't be any professional scouts. I really think again, they're going to have to scout the minors. You're going to have some. You want to lay eyes on guys at the major league level, but there may be a reduction. And we saw it with the Astros; it got some it got some play. Yeah, speaking of scouting, um, I believe I read that you had a hand a little bit in drafting Daniel Murphy. Did mm-hmm. you liked his his uh, amateur stats. So yeah. when he kind of broke out as a superstar, was it immensely satisfying to you that you'd liked him all those years ago, or frustrating that it mostly happened after he left the Mets? Um, well, it was pretty refreshing when to watch what happened during that playoff run, and uh, I think that that was great. That was actually inspired me to talk about it. That I had never really publicly talked about being involved in drafting him and i was kind of i was prideful i so guess t- you could so say t- t- so t- take us back to like the oh i guess it was the oh six draft oh five it was the oh six draft so we really didn't you know again another area where where statistics has has evolved we really didn't have a whole lot uh back then we were we had certainly had a player statistics but we weren't it wasn't a big thing we were more just monitoring it and, and getting a getting a sense of okay what did this guy do this is his stat line you know, now you, you can kind of put players in buckets based on their numbers. And we have, you have everything at your disposal. You also have some, some track man data. Uh, it's just, it's really evolved to the point where stats, I think for every team are a big part of it. And back then in 06, it was just a, it was just a kind of making sure or double checking, you know, okay, your scout says X and, or maybe it makes you like the player better. Uh, Tim Linskin was the same draft and had a massively high walk rate. And I remember arguing with 
our scouting director and some of our scouts about how the dude had no command. <laughs> and um, now they had some good explanations. He was essentially bouncing his breaking ball on purpose. There, there were some interesting, but there are some interesting explanations. I was just a total side note here. I, I was turned to in the positive on on Linscombe by the end of the season. They had convinced me that he was just too good, um, and the walk rate wasn't an issue. But and that and that once he got to pro ball, the walk rate was, you know, nil. Uh, until of course he got hurt and sure and all that. yeah <laughs> um but anyway so with daniel uh we had a scout steve barningham who was uh northern florida scout and uh since moved on he's he was a cross checker pretty quickly after that but daniel was one of his favorite players in the draft and uh let me know relatively early on about him and what was your role at the time? I was uh, the coordinator of amateur scouting. So it was one year that I did an amateur. All, almost all the other stuff for me has been more on the major league side. So I did that in 2006. And uh, taking a look at his numbers, I know I've looked at it since, but his strikeout-to-walk ratio, he was hitting 400. He won the Atlantic Sun MVP that year. It wasn't exactly rocket science, but his strikeout-to-walk ratio was absurd. It was something like 30 to 4, uh, 30 walks to 4 strikeouts. And this guy, you know, Steve's a really good scout, loved him, sent me the video. To me, he looked like a, he was a Wade Boggs, Don Mattingly type. Uh, he looked like Don Mattingly to me. And uh, after looking up those numbers and Steve's conviction, he became both of our favorite player basically in the draft. Uh, so... Uh, I look, 34 strikeouts, 13 walks. For All right, so I exaggerated. Home. Pretty good. It's still pretty awesome. 398, 475, <laughs> <Yeah>. 34. <laughs> Well, yeah. he, he's one of those guys we've talked about a lot because obviously he's talked about, you know, yes. I know my exit velocity launch angle. This is how I'm going to succeed. And that did begin to happen with the Mets. Then. Mm -hmm. So do you know how that really happened? Was it kind of him coming to you guys and saying, help me? Or was it presented to him in this way? Or It was it was, it was was Kevin. It was yeah. Kevin Long. Yeah. Kevin, essentially, uh, Daniel and Kevin kind of took it to, to another level uh, together, I guess you could say. But uh, just thinking Kevin's philosophy was – pull the ball, hit it hard in the air. Uh, and um, Daniel, before that, had would really frustrate us in the front office with that kind of trying to, what I would say, fillet the ball to left field. Um, <laughs> and uh, He had a very 19, like, 80s. Yeah. Hitting approach you thought in the 80s was the right way. Right. Wade Boggs sort of hitting yeah. approach. Yeah, and every once in a while, but he would he also didn't have great plate discipline, and he would, he would, he would go after balls that were six, eight inches off the plate and try and take them, take them to left field. And Kevin got him away from that. He got him a little bit more up on the plate and just said what Kevin will call your A swing, which is your best your best hack. You know, a guy takes it, swings at a pitch that's lowing away a breaking ball and his butt goes out and he's that's probably your D swing. Uh, but Kevin wanted Daniel to take his A swing every time. And they started talking about it. And as that evolved, Daniel kind of got in. And that was when launch angle and exit velo started becoming more part of the common lingo. And... Uh, the two of them got into it, and Daniel started studying more and got to the Nationals and kind of took it with him and made it better. Uh, for me, yeah, that was frustrating. I think, yeah, it was not satisfying to watch him crush us. I can tell you that. But what's what's uh, The thing is, if he had just gone to the Angels or the Mariners or you know somewhere out west, we could have just forgotten about it. But he, I think he's the best player against the Mets yeah. of the last five years, too. We just could not get him out. So no, that was not that was upsetting to me. I would have liked to have seen him, you know, not be good with the Nationals. Uh, but I did have some pride when he was crushing it for us. Well, that evo that evolution seemed to really start to take hold in the second half of the 15 season, and then yes. obviously in the playoffs, yes. which everyone remembers. 
was there conversation in the Mets front office? Like, how much conversation was there? Like, uh, is this is he is he a different guy? Do we need to yeah. like? I think yeah, and I've actually answered this. I I, I talked about this uh, in some of the some of the media that I've that I've done. Um, we touched on this. We didn't. We believed it was real. I mean, you couldn't watch that and and not believe it was real. I just think that we didn't think he was going to be Babe Ruth the next year, and he continued to just crush it. I think our, our thought process was he was going to end up somewhere in the middle. You know, he had he had evolved as a hitter, and he was a different hitter, but he wasn't going to be the the uh, NLCS MVP who no one could get out and was hitting for massive, massive power. I don't think we quite expected that. And really we were looking to just move on from the defense. And I know just looking at how bad the Mets defense is right now and as having as Drupal at second, maybe that doesn't necessarily make sense, but you watch a guy that many years, the base running blunders, the defense, the injury history was a big factor. He was always banged up with us and he still missed most of this year with the nationals. So those were factors uh, for us moving on from Daniel. Obviously, if we thought he was going to be what he is, we, we would have been happily put up with the defense. But I think in thinking he was probably going to meet more in between, we were, we were thinking uh, it was time to upgrade, upgrade and get a little more well-rounded player for that position. And we got Neil Walker, who was essentially old, old Daniel Murphy, a little better <laughs> and a better defender. And what happened? Well, Daniel stayed Daniel from the playoffs. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, about 10 years ago, you gave uh, – David Stearns, one of his first jobs in baseball as a general manager of the Milwaukee mm-hmm. Brewers. He was an intern uh, with you guys for a year. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts were of him at the time. Was he clearly like going to be a future GM in your eyes or it's, he's really had this great ascension? Yeah, he has. I think uh, David was one of the best interns we've had. And I always thought that he was going to be either not necessarily going to be a GM, but he had absolute GM potential. Uh, I didn't think that it would happen so quickly for him. And that, that sometimes it just, he's really smart good communicator uh and uh knows how to process information and it just it it worked for him you know found himself in some good spots and and he's doing a great job so yeah you know thinking about being prideful about things is very happy and and uh it was great to see that happen but yeah he was he was an outstanding intern you knew that his future was extremely bright well it's uh almost trade deadline it's the middle of july right now what is life like for everybody inside, you know, the Mets front office, really any front office, you know, right now with three weeks to go. I think you just have to be prepared that it's kind of an all hands on deck type situation where uh, you don't necessarily know when that call is going to come. But uh, I think a good, a good anecdote uh, that, that we, I, I, the, the three of us kind of talked off, off, uh, off, the air about sort of some trade deadline stories and one just popped into my head that gives you an idea uh so i don't remember we were it was when we traded for tyler clippard with the mets for the 2015 stretch run we ended up uh not not really giving up uh, a whole lot for him which was which was nice um but uh but to give you an idea we were playing on a sunday it was a sunday day game and uh the game ended, and I generally, uh, you know, once the game's over, I'm just going to the train. Uh, a little higher up, Sandy, John Rico, the assistant GM, they'll go meet with the coaches and talk it out. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm trying to go head home, go to my family. So I'm just about to get on the train, and the phone rings, and it's John. Got to come back to the office. We're talking to the A's about Tyler Clippard, and I think we're going to make a deal 
now. So come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we came back and, and, uh, it was, it, of our group. And I said, you know, Sandy was very collaborative. Uh, me and TJ, uh, came back and there was no one else in the office that day. Me and TJ came back, uh, me, TJ, John, and Sandy, we put a couple guys on the phone, got their opinions. Uh, we were trying to decide. They gave us three pitching prospects, uh, one of whom was actually Michael Fulmer, uh, who we, did, we ended up trading for Cespedes. So that would have been quite a disaster if we had traded him for Tyler Clippard, which we, we didn't want to do, but there were a couple couple pitching prospects who were, who were under, uh, under consideration. Um, uh, we, ended up, we ended up trading a kid named Meisner for him. Um, and, uh, that was, it ended up being a pretty good trade for us, but that gives you an idea. You just essentially have to be available and you never know where that, when that call is going to come, but your the first step is obviously to prepare and think about which teams might be interested in your players if you're sellers. So last couple of years we've been sellers. So, well, we went last year putting together for me, uh, a list of the teams that could be interested in our players and kind of get an idea of what the role was as senior director of baseball ops. Um, I kind of coordinated the information with the rest of the group and would give Sandy uh, a list of teams that I thought kind of a call list. And of course they're double checking it and they may add to it or, or, or take away from it. But so, okay, I think these teams are interested in X player. Let's see, you make the calls. Okay, this team might be interested. This team's interested. Then you're putting together lists of players that you like. Uh, and you know how much are you using stats? How much are you using scouting reports? For me, the best way is to get a blend. When everything when everything clicks and you've got a good scouting report and you have you have a good statistical profile, then then all is good. When when it's conflicting, it can it can be challenging. This is the time of year where every uh, thirty seconds, some reporter says, "Oh, I have a source. This is the." Oh trade. sure. I imagine most of the time you guys get a good laugh out of that because it's like nowhere near reality. But I also figure every once in a while you're throwing things at people saying, "Who talked to this guy?" Oh yeah, yeah. You don't. Well, a lot of the times it comes out. It's just when the trade is at the final stages and you want to know what, how did this happen? You think it it light. There's there's someone who's talking. Um, or maybe it comes from the other team. Certainly at the Wilmer Flores situation where he's traded and crying. Sure. Uh, a lot of t the thing is though, I guess what I'd say is it's just not that. S it, on one level, it's not that complicated. It's not that cool. Like you know, it's not it's not like super super top secret stuff. But there's tons of names that get kicked around. So when it gets to the media, and yeah, you're just kind of laughing about like, okay, this team checked in or you know it's a, it's a whole new language just based on trying to figure out a way right that yeah. to say that this team checked in on this guy or this <laughs> team offered this guy um it, it's pretty it's pretty amusing to look at it and yeah you, you'll chuckle every once in a while I, I think there's teams that will leak stuff that they're interested in a player and you haven't heard from them at all <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're like wait what and then maybe they telegraphed it maybe you'll hear from them like a week later there's one team that's really guilty of that they'll they'll tell the media that they're i won't say who but they, they'll tell the media that they're interested in a boatload of players and you're like wait what they never told us that yeah so um so that's that's kind of amusing you mentioned the um you mentioned fulmer who ended up getting traded for cespedes and if i recall correctly that trade deadline that year like july 31st 2015 i remember being in the office and like around here, trade deadline's fun when there's a lot of action. And that yeah. one was like a total nothing happened that July thirty first. And yep. then like two minutes before yeah. four o'clock, it's like, okay, Cespedes for Fulmer, it's done. And there might have been another player involved. 
How close did that trade? Yeah. How close did that trade come to not happening, or was it kind of going to get done all along, and we only found out about no. it at three fifty eight? You know, PM? it was really close. I mean, it it was really close to the, they were at the deadline. It was it was uh, like maybe a minute left to get it in. So yeah, maybe not even maybe twenty seconds. So uh, in terms of in terms of actually getting the trade approved and getting it in before the deadline, uh, we had pretty much agreed maybe ten minutes before the deadline. And the whole the whole thing with that was that Sandy was spent almost the entire day trying to talk them out of Michael Fulmer. So, um, and that was the only guy they would take. Do you remember who he wanted to give up instead? We pretty much went through every player in our farm system. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, you know that uh, there's certainly I, I guess a couple guys, you know, handful of guys that maybe were ahead of him, three or four guys that we were less willing to trade than Fulmer, but. It was more along the lines of trying to get them to take any other pitching prospect that we had. And good job by the Tigers. That was the guy they wanted. And at the end of the day, we were all in. Sandy was all in. Ownership was all in. And he pulled the trigger reluctantly. Uh, he really didn't. We didn't really want to trade Michael Fulmer. So that's why it went to the deadline. We also liked Justin Upton quite a bit. And uh, we're talking to the Padres as well. And they, were, uh, they weren't interested in that deal. So... Looking back as as a front office member, you know, like you know, fans look at these deals a little bit differently, right? You know, the the Mets essentially only traded for three months of Cespedes. Of course, of course they've resigned him since, but at the time they're mm-hmm. only getting him for three months. So you could argue that like it was a bad trade in a vacuum because mm-hmm. Fulmer had you know six years of team control, whereas Cespedes right. only got. But how does a front office view like that trade? You know, compared to how a fan might look at it? Yeah, I think I think you have to understand the stakes. Uh, look at the Cubs, for example. They absolutely knew that Glaber Torres was going to be a star. They did it anyway because they hadn't won the World Series in so long. It was a finishing piece. It was time to do it. And you got to look at Fulmer the same way. It worked so well getting. First of all, I don't. I don't think anyone thought that Fulmer was going to quite be this. Uh, certainly, he was a really good pitching prospect. But but to be the rookie of the year and become basically an ace. I know he's not pitching that well this year, but the last couple years, uh, be an ace. I don't think we quite expected him to be that good, but. Even having said that, I think if the trade works out on your end and you get to the World Series, you're going to do that every day of the week. And I think most Mets fans feel pretty good about that. I haven't heard a whole – I mean, look, I was there when when we uh, we did the Casimir trade, which I'm sure made your head explode. And, you know, that, that trade's different. Um, the fans are still upset about that. And I think it, it at the end of the day, it's really not who you trade. It's who you get back. That's what it comes down to. And if, if you're – comfortable with who you got back in that type of deal then you have to be okay with who you're giving up but you know what you're giving up I I think most teams are pretty smart these days and you can't really snooker too many teams so in a lot of these cases you're bent you're twisting their arm and saying look you want the guy you've got to give us your best guy or we know you know this guy's good you got to give them up. Yeah, as you said, it was a, a collaborative front office. And I, I think people tend to think that all trades are just like the GM calling up other GMs. But mm-hmm. I imagine a lot of times, you know, you're speaking to other people on your level with their other teams and then bringing those deals to the general manager. And saying, hey, there might mm-hmm. be an opening here for this kind of move. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any of those that really stand out to you as like, this was kind of my deal that I brought? You know, n- well, no, I wouldn't really say it's it's more just it's more just kind of checking in and getting a sense that, OK, are you guys interested in, in this or that? Most of the things that I was involved in didn't. They I don't have one that that necessarily came to fruition. Um, 
but but yeah, it's it's a collaborative effort in the sense that you know yeah you're 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 casting a wide net to every team and talking to different people and trying to get a sense of uh, of who they're interested in and what they're doing. But that I didn't do a lot of that. It was really it was generally John and Sandy who were doing that. Um, in the cases that I did do that, it most of them fizzled out. I will say so. <laughs> <laughs> well, this year uh, the big topic for Mets fans around the trade deadline is Jacob DeGrom. It's, you know, should or should, I mean, assuming like, should the Mets trade him or should they not? Yes or no. Mike uh, wrote a piece about this that was um, pretty compelling, got a lot of response on social media, basically making the case, here's why the Mets should trade Jacob DeGrom. Where do you stand kind of on this issue now? I think, I think, um, and I, you know, of course I read, I read Mike's article uh, and I agree with the overall premise. I think his value will likely never be higher. And to get to get the most, uh, you would expect that based on that, this would be when the time you would get the most for him. And you also you made another point, which is the teams with kind of the top top guys aren't really in. Yeah, it's like the Reds and the Padres, like these rebuilding teams that probably yeah. aren't going to get to. Yeah, or right or now. like the so here's the thing: you're not trading him without one of those guys. That's my philosophy. There's no the Mets don't need bulk. That's I, I don't think. Uh, like uh, I think you mentioned the Brewers trade, and not to not to punk on my my uh, my old friend Mr. Stearns, but I I wouldn't be interested in that in any way. Well, how, here is just not a good enough player to center a deal around for Jacob. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask. How different are the evals? We, we all have these public. Uh, it's prospects. it's not that he's not a good. And no, I, I don't mean I, him. Yeah. I just mean like in general. Like we have our MLB pipeline yeah. list and Baseball America. Everybody's got their lists, and I think fans get really hung up on those numbers. They think like, oh, number five versus number eight, that's right. a tremendous difference. No. It's really yeah. not the case. It's really not. And those lists are, they're, they're arbitrary. They're, they're, they, there's a lot of different things that go into it. And there's been plenty of players who haven't been on those lists who've turned into all-stars, outstanding players. But they usually, there may be one or two guys in that top 10 that are a total bust that they miss on. But when you look at kind of just... I'm just using it as kind of a barometer benchmark. Your internal evaluation may be that a guy who's ranked 75th on that list is one of the top prospects in baseball. I guess what I'm saying is that your internal evaluation has to be that that guy is that type of player, a potential top five prospect in baseball. So who who would that be that I would be willing to trade Jacob deGrom for? Uh, Glaber Torres, Ronald Acuna, uh, Tatis, uh, Guerrero, you're not talking about a, a very big group here. So for me, if you're not getting that, if you're not getting in scouting terms an 80 back for an 80, then for me, it's not worth the exercise. So if one of those teams was in, then, and that's kind of what the Mets are doing. They're, they're saying, look, if you're willing to offer us one of those guys, then we're going to think about it. But outside of that, um, I don't think so. So I don't think they need bulk. My, my take on the Mets they, this year, particularly that got bit, uh, it's, it's, it was a factor for us in the past where we didn't always have necessarily the best depth. Uh, their 40-man depth has really hurt them this year. For me, they got to build a better 40 next year. I think it'll be easier to get minor league free agents out of Vegas, uh, you know, moving to Syracuse. Uh, they got to build a better 40, find a way to fix the pen, uh, shore up that defense, but that's not that's not crazy as far as a rebuild goes. So now it does seem that on paper the team that might match up with them the best is the Yankees, right? So let's say the Yankees. Let's just say the Brewers had what the Yankees have to offer. Let's say the Brewers had 
Justice Sheffield and and Duhar and Clint Frazier. Clint Frazier do you think that it would make a deal more? No, like I, I don't know. Not the Yankees. See, I, I don't see Andujar as that. I know Andujar is crushing it right now. I don't see him as that kind of guy. For me, I don't know what the Mets' evaluation is. For me, the Yankees, it would have to be Torres. If the Brewers had a Torres-type guy or some of these other teams that, that would be interested in DeGrom that would put them over the top, uh, then I think you've really got to think hard about it. But short of that, and it doesn't seem like that exists. The Padres wanted to wanted to get creative and and try to move up their window and trade Tatis then maybe that's something that that uh, that the Mets might want to think about um, but but short of that I, I'm not uh, I'm not biting if I'm the Mets and I'm, I'm not doing it with Cinder. we didn't talk Syndergaard you know his value certainly not at a peak right now and uh, maybe I'm too emotionally attached I, I it's it'd be really hard and I, I'm sure the guys in the front office feel this way too uh, that it's really going to be really hard for them to trade those guys versus ex- try to think about extending them and build build around them for the next however many years. But I do think if you're going to trade a franchise-type player, you need to find a franchise-altering type player back. Where do you think, uh, getting off the trade deadline for me, where do you think baseball is going next? Like Every team uses data now. That wasn't really true even 10 years ago. Every team has smart guys in the front mm-hmm. office, and the players themselves are now getting very much into this in a lot of cases yeah. what's what's sort of the next frontier for the really uh, next level teams i think uh they're starting to do it monitoring health and fitness is a big it's a big thing uh wearables figuring out they're starting to let them into the game a little bit you can't really do a whole lot uh during the game but uh monitoring heart rate uh monitoring nutrition sleep off the field those types of things i think injury prevention and certainly it's a it's a, a hot topic with the Mets, but the Pirates have gotten some attention for doing that kind of thing. I think that's that's a big uh, a big area for teams to move into for the next uh, the next kind of frontier. And we talked about earlier the mo- the the motionless uh, the motionless capture is is a factor with that too. Getting a feel for guys' mechanics and and studying that during the game and and how does you have track man on one level and you can do something with release point stride length uh you know the the your uh spin rates velocity is your basic but but you can still do some of that monitoring with with track man and when we did that with the mets but but if you have that that type of, of program where you're with the high-speed cameras and getting a sense of a, pl- a player's delivery you can really monitor the injury stuff um, but really off the field, trying to – you saw teams have these sleep sleep rooms, sure. MLB-mandated sleep rooms, uh, just trying to get a feel for that. And we saw that the the travel schedule, more off days, it's really rough. Uh, that travel schedule can be really tough on players. We don't think about that, but uh, they are human beings. And, I mean, it, it, it when I would go on a, on a trip with a team and you'd be – you, you play a, a night game and you get into a city at 5 a.m. and then you have a game that night, I mean – think about that it's it's pretty challenging so that was part of the schedule but that's that's what teams are kind of trying to do in terms of monitor that time, kind of stuff and kind of going back to the the prospects in the minor leagues um, you know we have all, the hardware in all 30 parks but we don't manage any minor league stuff but yep. i assume pretty much every team has a track man in pretty much every stadium i've seen it in coney mm-hmm. island for the for the yeah. brooklyn team and that must be something that's pretty interesting for you guys to you know evaluate your own team and and other team like i would really love to know how hard peter alonzo hits the ball i don't have yeah. that data unfortunately yeah. but i assume it's impressive absolutely uh i i um well he wasn't uh i don't i don't recall last year how hard he was hit. he was i think he was hitting the ball hard last year but he's certainly taken a leap this year and i haven't gotten a chance to look at that uh but yes that has become a huge, a huge thing, and 
and so much more data and video on minor leaguers. We kind of touched on it earlier. Uh, almost every team has has TrackMan, and there's sharing. You you have them in your own ballparks, but you have sharing agreements where you're able to get at least a certain amount of data from other teams, and uh, so you can you can get a feel for how hard these guys are hitting. You can without laying eyes on a guy, you're not going to take a guy in a major trade without laying eyes on him, but you might take a throw in without laying eyes on him just based on the data. You know, I mean, uh, interestingly enough, Andres Jimenez was, uh, who's now one of the Mets' best prospects, was somewhat in demand uh, at the trading deadline two years ago, just based mostly off really his, his raw numbers because his strikeout-to-walk ratio was absurd, but um, may have been a little more advanced data on the guy too. Since you're here, we have to ask, have you seen Tebow play, and is he going to be in the big leagues this year? <laughs> I have seen Tebow play uh, a bunch of times. I haven't seen the new and improved Tebow, although I did see your Twitter feed today with the uh, high batting average on balls in play. He's got a uh, so he's got a, a 105 weighted runs created plus, which I feel is objectively impressive at Double A for a guy yes. who barely played in the decade. But he's also got a 423 batting average on balls in play, which would be the highest in Triple A or Double A or High A, which seems <laughs> yeah. a little unsustainable. A 36 percent strikeout rate as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I think that's an open question. The fact that their season's in the tank makes it more likely, although I, I'm not sure. I, I, there's definitely a sentiment that he's got to earn it, and I think you'd like to see him in AAA. But the fact that it's really impressive. I mean, taking everything away and, you know, roll your eyes at Tebow and all that, the guy, you said it, he didn't play for a decade, and he's able to to put up a 700-plus OPS in AA. For me, that's... A, He's an absurd. I mean, we knew this, but he's an absurd athlete, and it's really impressive. Uh, I certainly think that there's a chance that he's gonna be he's gonna be up, but I have no. And in reality, I have no inside information. I have not talked to anyone with the Mets about this. I just think, just like you guys, you speculate and you see that Tim Tebow's in the organization. The season's in the tank. He's actually doing really well. Uh, I think it's certainly a possibility, just based on all those factors, but. They're aware of kind of the circus aspect of it, and I think at the end of the day, you'd still like to see him earn it and, and go to AAA. And funny enough, there's also the 40-man roster implications, which might we would all chuckle about, but they do. if they want to keep him in the organization, I would expect that they don't necessarily want to keep him on the roster over the course of the offseason, and there's probably at least a handful of teams that would take him for the exact same reason and don't have the LOL Mets factor that everyone wants, like, like that they would just get a free pass. Like, it, yeah. you know, the Tebow plus the Mets when everyone wants to make fun of the Mets, you know, it's it just unfortunately a recipe for, uh, for mockery. And the but, Mets have already sort of done the vetting of being like, Hey, at least it can be passable. Right. He can right. go to He's the, embarrass he can go to the way. White Sox and no one even cares. And they're like, Hey, that's awesome. It's Tim Tebow. But with the Mets, it's, you know, roll your eyes. So I lived it. <laughs> Well, Adam, we can't appreciate your time enough. Uh, follow Adam, Adam G. Fisher on Twitter. Uh, Adam with the New York Mets for over a decade and recently with the Braves. Really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Thank you, Mike. I, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, enjoyed it. It's a, it's a fun time of year. Uh, thanks, Matt. Good to, uh, good to meet you guys and, uh, and fun to spend some time. We'll have you back on sometime. This Sounds is good. the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.